If I haven't met you yet, my name is Ethan Brown, and I'm the RUF campus minister at the University of Illinois. I've uh, been there for two years now with my family, and it's been awesome. Uh, I'll echo something that Justin said uh, before he preached to us last night, uh, that RUF has just been so meaningful in my own walk with Jesus, going back to my days as a college student at the University of Florida. And it's just so encouraging to me that y'all would come and spend a weekend with us. Uh, I think you've probably heard already, we really want everything we do in RUF, including Fall Conference, to be something that is for you, whether you have been following Jesus for a really long time, and you strongly identify as a follower of Christ, or if you're pretty new to this, you're still exploring the claims of the Bible. So thank you for being here. Thank you for entrusting yourselves to us, and I'm excited to get to spend this next hour talking about justice and mercy and hopefully getting to know y'all a little bit as well. Uh, but let me pray before we dive in. Father, I thank you for this time we get to spend together thinking about your word, thinking about your gospel, the good news about Jesus and how it meets us right where we are, but it doesn't leave us there, how it can really bring transformation to our lives and to our world. I pray that you would send your Holy Spirit now so that we would have the ability to understand your word, uh, to believe your word, to apply it to our lives. And I pray that as we see your justice and mercy on full display in the bright face of our Savior Jesus, that we would be transformed from one degree of glory to another, even in this important arena of our lives. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. The seminar that you're about to hear is a one-hour seminar pulling from a four-day seminar that I taught at Summer Conference back in May. I'm telling you this on the front end because I can almost guarantee you there is something you are going to want me to talk about today that I will not talk about. Uh, and it's not because it doesn't matter or because I wouldn't enjoy that conversation, but really just because we're limited on time. So my hope for this next hour is actually relatively modest. I want us to look into God's word together to think about the important topic of justice and mercy, something that is really important in our society today, even if there's a lot of misunderstanding surrounding it. And I want us to look at, look at this next hour. Just, we're, we're just trying to lay a foundation that we can jump off from into growing into this area in different aspects of our lives, of understanding this important teaching of God's word of justice and mercy more and more. So what does that mean? It means we could think about justice and mercy on at least two dimensions. We could think about the vertical dimension and the horizontal dimension. Vertically, and this is really where we're going to spend a lot of our time this morning, we could think about justice and mercy as aspects of God's character, as central to the story of the rescue of God's people through Jesus Christ. And even, in a sense, is what it looks like for us as the people of God, the church, to be obedient to the call that God has given his people. <laughs> Excuse me. But we can also think about it on this horizontal plane of what does it actually look like for us to live just and merciful lives. 
My hope, my goal is that one of the fruits of this seminar is that we would be growing in that horizontal dimension, even as a lot of the foundational work that we're doing is going to be focusing more on that vertical dimension in this next hour. But with that in mind, I want to start with a description and a definition of this horizontal justice. So we're working with some common terminology. And at the end, we're going to return to some practical takeaways, uh, some hopefully somewhat helpful counsel as to what it actually looks like to grow in this arena in light of God's character and the gospel and the mission of the church. So uh, this is from a biblical scholar named Bruce Waltzke, and he's describing what in the Old Testament a just or a righteous person is like. He says, in the Old Testament, just or righteous people are willing to disadvantage themselves for the advantage of their neighbors. Unjust or unrighteous people are willing to disadvantage their neighbors to advantage themselves. So tuck that one away. We're going to return to that idea later on. And then Tim Keller gives a pretty simple, helpful definition of what, is, what it means to live a just life from the Bible's perspective. Justice means giving people what they are due, whether punishment or protection or care. So keep those definitions in mind as we go forward. But I think we actually need to start with God's character. What does God tell us about himself in his word and how does that relate to these ideas of justice and mercy that are important and prominent in our hearts and lives. So I want you to turn with me, if you're able, to Exodus chapter 34. I'm going to read verses 1 through 8. Uh, you can follow along in your paper copies of God's Word on your phone, or you can just listen carefully if you prefer. Uh, but I'm going to keep moving for the sake of time. Exodus 34 verses 1 through 8. The Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. He's talking about the Ten Commandments there. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression on sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, Please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. The passage that we just read is actually one of the high watermarks 
in the history of God's revelation about himself, his speech about himself to his people. It's one of these moments that in many other parts of the Bible afterwards, God's people would be looking back to this moment. Because in this moment, God in a special way reveals his name to his people. He speaks about who he is to his people. He is Yahweh. He's the Lord. He is the one who's come to enter into a covenant, a special relationship with his people so that they can belong to him and he can belong to them. But I want you to notice, how does God describe himself in this like literally mountaintop experience as he's revealing about who he is to his people? He describes himself, we could say, as a God who is a God of both justice and mercy, a God who forgives sins, who extends pardon, whose steadfast love endures forever, who is slow to anger, but also a God who will by no means clear the guilty, who will visit the iniquity of the fathers. So there are all sorts of reasons that you might be here in the seminar this morning, that you might be interested in learning more about justice and mercy, thinking about how it applies to our lives. There are even other good reasons in the Bible, and we'll talk about some of them, for why we should care about justice and mercy. But the fundamental reason is we worship a God, or if you're here this morning exploring the claims of the Bible, you're being invited to worship a God whose character is marked by justice and mercy, and it's even central for God in the way that he speaks about himself to his people. In the New Testament, the apostle Peter says, therefore be holy as your father in heaven is holy. So as we're thinking about justice and mercy this morning, we actually need to start with who God is. He is a God of justice and mercy. And in light of that, I want us to turn now to another passage. There are literally hundreds of passages we could look at that address this issue. But I want to look at just one more. Um, Micah chapter 6, verse 8. Uh, So turn there in your Bibles if you'd like. Uh, I'll read it loudly if you just want to listen and follow along. I think this is some of the more famous words from the Old Testament. And this is what it says. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? In Micah 6, 8, when God says, what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God? I don't think that God is saying this is all that there is to the Christian life, because if that were true, the Bible would be pretty short. Uh, The Bible is fundamentally a story of God's rescue of his people, but it also includes much helpful instruction for what it looks like to live in God's kingdom, to live as a member of God's family. So this is not all that there is to say, but it is central. Think about what Jesus says in the New Testament when people come to him and they ask him what the greatest commandment is. He actually has an answer to that question. He says the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And a second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. 
And I actually think Jesus's answer to that question, which summarizes what it means to live in relationship with God, flowing out of his grace, flowing out of his mercy and kindness, love God and love others. It actually maps on perfectly to what Micah is talking about in Micah 6.8. As we are called to live humbly before our God, living before his face, loving him, with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, but also as we are called to live lives that are marked by justice and mercy towards our neighbors. It's about loving God and loving others. So what does this mean? Justice and mercy are central to the character of God as he speaks about his name in Exodus 34, and as he shows what his character is like when he's talking about what is most central to his law, which reflects God's heart, reflects the things that he values. But justice and mercy are not just central to God's character and his revelation about himself. They're also central to the very story of the gospel, the very story of God's rescue of his people throughout history. So turn with me now to Luke chapter 1, and I'm going to read verses 46 through 55. This is Mary's song. It's a song that she's singing in response to the announcement that the kingdom of God is dawning in a new way because the Messiah, the promised king, is showing up on the scene and he's actually going to be the child of this Hebrew virgin Mary. This is what she sings. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. So at the dawning of the kingdom of God, when the Messiah is showing up on the scene, what does Mary sing about? Again, we we could give more than one right answer to that question, but she's singing about the justice and the mercy of God. That God is a God who at the same time tears down the mighty from their thrones, the arrogant who are living in rebellion against him. He exerts his justice in the world, but he's also the one who lifts up the humble, who feeds the hungry, who shows his kindness to the weak and lowly, even a weak and lowly and poor maidservant like Mary. So we, in our day and age of constant dichotomies, we find it so easy to polarize things and separate things, we actually need to sit at the feet of Mary for a moment and see that from God's perspective, from the perspective of those who are paying attention to the story he's crafting through history, justice and mercy go hand in hand. That they're actually two beautiful notes in the story of the gospel, that if we only play one to the neglect of the other, the song is less beautiful. That we actually need to be playing both notes loudly. And Mary helps us with that. And in fact, some of y'all might know the opening question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, 
Uh, what is man's chief end? What is the purpose for which God has created us? The answer to that question is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And look at how Mary starts this song. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord. She's glorifying him and my spirit rejoices. She's enjoying him. So justice and mercy are central to the story of God's rescue. And they're, they're actually important for us to see if we want to be living into our, our purpose for which God made us. But I want to move on now to uh, riff on a little bit some of what Justin has been talking about so far this weekend, what he'll continue to talk about. And it's really helpful that he's in the room so he can correct me if I say anything wrong. Um, But justice and mercy are central to the gospel. And one way that we see that is actually in what the Bible talks about with this beautiful term, justification. So to unpack that a little bit, I'm going to do a couple of things. I'm going to draw your attention to two Hebrew words, and then we're going to read a passage from the New Testament. Uh, In the Old Testament, there are two Hebrew words that show up again and again for justice. One of them is mishpat. It's the word that is used in Micah 6.8 when it's talking about justice, and that's a word that shows up 200 times in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, So if you need to be convinced that God cares about justice, 200 times is a lot of emphasis. But there's this other word, zadikah, that is also used. And I'm mentioning these two words because they have an interesting relationship with one another. A biblical scholar named Alec Motir argued that zadikah in the scriptures is this primary justice. It ultimately flows out of having a right relationship with God. And because this believer in the Old Testament has a right relationship with God, they're therefore committed to right living. Uh, It's a positive view of justice. Whereas mishpat is secondary justice. It's a response to the injustices of the world. It's rectifying justice. Why is this helpful? Well, I hope we'll see in a moment. Let's turn now to Romans 3, 21 through 26. Romans 3, 21 through 26, and I'll read this passage for us. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show the righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The Bible teaches that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And one of the primary words that the Bible uses to talk about our sin is injustice. We commit idolatry against God. We worship false gods. We rebel against him. We run from his home. And towards our neighbors, towards other image bearers, we commit injustice. We treat them with harm and disrespect and slanderous words and fill in the blank rather than treating them with the love and dignity which they deserve. So what does God do about this? 
The Bible teaches that God does not look over any sin. Remember Exodus 34. He doesn't ignore our sin. He must punish sin. So what does he do? To satisfy his justice and his mercy as he sends Jesus Christ into the world to receive for us the wrath of God against sin. That's what that word propitiation means in verse 25. The wrath of God was poured out on Jesus and he soaked it up like a sponge so that God's justice and his mercy could go hand in hand. So that God could be both the just, the one who never turns a blind eye to wrongdoing, and the justifier, the one who's able to extend mercy to sinners. So part of what I want us to see is that if we want to be a people that are growing in the mishpat kind of justice, paying attention to the injustices of our world and trying, whether in our private lives or in our communities, to resist those injustices, we actually need to start with making sure that we have a right relationship with God, the kind of right relationship that he has provided for us through faith in Jesus. So I'm going to draw three diagrams, I guess, on the board really quickly to unpack this a little further, and then I'll pause for questions. So if you have questions bubbling, you can start thinking about how you want to ask them. Another way to think about these ideas is uh, with three math equations. Do we have any engineers in the room? <laughs> All the Illinois students. Yeah, got some. Okay. Uh, we're going to use three equations to understand this better. So you could think about the role of good works, even the role of good works that look like acts of justice, acts of mercy in our world in three ways, at least three ways. And one way is like this. We could think about our works as something that we need to do to have a right relationship with God. I don't know if I've met any Christians who would say that like faith in Jesus doesn't matter or trust in Jesus doesn't matter. If they're, if they're going to say that, then there's no real meaningful sense in which they're a Christian, right? But some Christians have this misunderstanding that faith in Jesus is really important. It might even get me 99% of the way. But then there, there are things that I need to do. I need to start living a life of love towards others. I need to start living a life of justice and mercy towards others if I'm going to have justification, if I'm going to have a right standing with God, if he's going to accept me. That's view number one. You'll be shocked to find out that view number three is the right one. Another way to think about this is faith. Oh, that's wrong. Faith equals justification. So this view is that at the end of the day, if you trust in Jesus, it doesn't matter how you live. God loves to forgive, and I love to sin. It's a wonderful arrangement, <laughs> right? Like we, we living a life of, that's marked by justice and mercy, that doesn't really matter. Like, like I trust in Jesus, so works, uh, don't talk to me about works. Like that, that really doesn't matter at the end of the day. Here, here's what the Bible actually teaches. Faith in Jesus is, is fundamental. You cannot be a Christian if you don't trust in him. But flowing out of that is both this new relationship with God, this new standing you have with him, this new status, 
that when God looks at you, he doesn't see you as the sinner that you really are, but as the perfectly obedient son of God that Jesus was in your place if you trust in him. But also flowing out of that faith, that new relationship, that new dependence is good works, right? And that, that applies in all sorts of different ways in our lives, but it also applies to acts of justice and mercy as we are seeking to be people whose lives are more and more conformed to the kingdom of God. I've been talking at y'all for a while. Uh, let me pause here for comments or questions. Doesn't have to be a question. Anything that's going in your mind? Yeah, go ahead. Man, that is such a good question, and I don't know if I can give you a comprehensive answer right now. I, th- uh, I do think in our lives we want to be holding those things together, right? So especially as you're in relationship with people, it can be an act of love to invite them to recognize some way they've treated you unjustly and to invite repentance, right? So that, that's, that's actually also a merciful thing, right? They, they kind of go hand in hand. I guess my one... Uh, clear feedback, and then maybe we can talk more afterwards on some of the details, is um, we, in, in light of the mercy that we have received in Christ, we can pursue more just relationships on an individual level and in our society at large, but it is not our job to enforce that, right? So vengeance is the Lord's. And God, I mean, some of y'all in here have maybe been harmed in really significant ways, and God has provided for Uh, justice to be carried out at least in some way even if not imperfectly through uh, different authorities in our lives whether that's church authority or governmental authority so um, I think as we have opportunity to set wrongs right we can do that but because we've received mercy and because we know one day God will bring final justice we'll return to that later we're freed from the compulsive need to make things right now even though we can pursue that as, as we're able. I'm, I'm sure there's more that could be said. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. Other questions or comments? Yeah. Mm. So I, I think that's like 
Mm. That's good. Thank you, Justin. Uh, one of the passages that shows up in my four-day version of the seminar that we had to skip is a passage from Zechariah that talks about, uh, some scholars call it the quartet of the vulnerable, that you see again and again in the pages of the Bible, uh, these four groups of people that are especially vulnerable, at least in ancient Near Eastern society. Uh, you have the widow, the orphan, the poor, and the foreigner. And it's just abundantly clear that God's heart goes out to, towards those people, and, and, and we should as well. Yeah. Other questions or comments? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That is an amazing question, and I think it really matters, and I, I don't know if I have time to respond to it thoughtfully right now, um, but I would love to maybe dialogue a little bit afterwards. I will mention one resource, though, that I also had to, I think it was cut from the bibliography that I think does help in that regard. Uh, there's a book called Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson. Have you heard of this book? Um, I, I don't know if I, I would say, like, I 100% agree with everything he says, which doesn't really matter what I think, but what God's Word teaches. But I think that's a really helpful book for, like, how do we hold these two things together? And at least got the gears turning in my head. So, yeah, thank you for, for that question. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, that, that's a great question. So I would say, like, very often we're thinking of justice more in the terms of the rectifying sense, the mishpat sense. And in that sense, um, there, there's a significant difference between love and justice. But I, I do think some of the ways that the scriptures talk about this, um, having a just character in light of God's just character um, and, and the more, like, positive side of it, overlaps in many respects with love. It's like, what does it mean to show love towards your neighbor? It is to treat them with the dignity that is theirs, even if it means following the, the example of Jesus, being willing to disadvantage ourselves, to go low for them, Philippians 2, so that uh, they can be lifted up. But it's a good question. I want to move on. Uh, let's read Luke 19, verses 1 through 10. And this is going to continue to illustrate for us some of the things we've been talking about. Uh, he, Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. 
And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. These verses I just read are a story about a notorious sinner encountering Jesus. Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector. And if you know anything about tax collectors even today, like we don't love the IRS, right? Uh, well, back, back in Jesus's day, tax collectors actively took advantage of the power that was entrusted to them by the Roman government to levy a heavier tax than what was required to line their pockets. In other words, Zacchaeus was using his power to take advantage of and oppress the poor to make himself more rich. And here's this man who's hated by his Jewish compatriots, who's an outcast in society and also an active oppressor in that society, encountering Jesus. And what happens? He is transformed because of it. And I want you to notice two things that we've kind of already alluded to this morning. Two things that are true. Jesus meets Zacchaeus right where he is. He doesn't ask Zacchaeus to clean himself up before he comes and eats with Zacchaeus in his home. He meets him right where he is, but he doesn't leave him there. That's the other thing. This encounter with Jesus. We could say Zacchaeus was justified. He, he had this encounter with Jesus. He put his trust in him, but there were good works that flowed out of that. And he's actually a beautiful example of what repentance is like in the Bible. Repentance is not just turning from our sin and stopping doing a bad thing. It's turning from our sin towards Jesus, turning from our sin towards righteousness. We can think of repentance as the other side of the coin of faith, uh, that it's something you do at the beginning of your Christian life, but it's also something you do again and again and again and again every day. And Zacchaeus is showing us he's not just stopping robbing people because he's encountered Jesus. He's also becoming a man who's living a life of generosity. He's not just restoring what he's stolen. He's giving back fourfold than what he's taken from these people. In other words, if we want to be living lives of increasing justice, on our individual personal lives and see that more and more in our society, we really do need to start by encountering Jesus and good works of obedience and justice can flow out from that. Uh, so that, that brings us now to our second to last section. We're going to think a little bit about justice and mercy in relation to the church. So think about this question for a moment. I'm not going to ask you to answer out loud. But if, if someone asks you, what is the mission of the church, how would you answer that? I'll let you think for a moment. 
Uh, I'm going to say on the front end, different Christians, even Christians whom I love and respect, can give slightly different answers to this question, usually not radically different, but different answers to this question. I do think there's a right answer in light of the teaching of God's word. Uh, So I'm going to tell you what I think that is, but then we're going to talk about where justice and mercy fit in the picture. So Jesus, in Matthew chapter 28, gives his marching orders to his apostles after he's risen from the dead and right before he's ascending into heaven. He says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all the things that I've commanded you. The mission of the church is to make disciples. The mission of the church is to spread the gospel. So let me me put it provocatively for a moment, and then I'll explain what I mean. The mission of the church is not to create a more just society. You're like, why in the world is he saying this in a seminar about justice and mercy? I think this matters. The mission of the church is not to create a more just society. If that were our mission, every church in the history of the world will have failed in that mission uh, because injustice marks all of our societies. Our mission is to spread the gospel. The marching orders from Jesus is to help people to come to be connected with God and his people. Maybe some of y'all have heard your campus minister, campus staff, intern talk about the mission of RUF. It's to reach students for Christ and to equip them to serve, to connect them to Jesus and connect them to God's people. Uh, it's, it's our way of talking about the Great Commission. That is the mission. But just because that is central and primary doesn't mean that acts of justice and mercy are unimportant even if they are secondary. Because part of what we are called to do from the pages of especially the early chapters of the book of Acts is to witness to Jesus, to witness to the kingdom of God. And how we witness is not just in the words that we say, but in our lives and in our deeds. So actually, a life that is marked by justice and mercy is incredibly important for our individual and corporate mission to spread the gospel, uh, that lives of justice and mercy serve this purpose that Jesus has given us. So this is not, recognizing this truth is not an excuse for us to become passive about justice and mercy in our lives. And I think it can actually be helpful here to think about the church God's people, the family of God, in a couple of different ways. You can think about the church gathered and the church scattered. So as the church is gathered, for example, on Sundays to worship God, uh, to hear the preaching of God's word, to receive the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, as the church is gathered, the main thing is the main thing. Like we are there to worship God, to hear the gospel, to spread the gospel in our communities. But that does not mean that as the church is scattered, as the church is sent out into the world, as you're sent out to live uh, your life in the vocation that God is calling you, or even your vocation right now as a student, that doesn't mean that justice and mercy have nothing to do with our mission. Because as we're scattered out, we are invited to not only preach the gospel, but to live in light of its reality. So here's here's another way that we could put it Uh, here in RUF. We are opposed to the social gospel 
but we also recognize the gospel is social. Let me, let me let you know what I mean by that. In the early 20th century, there were an increasing number of Christians, including a lot of Christian leaders, pastors, theologians, that started planting their flag with this thing called the social gospel, uh, which importantly paid a lot of attention to the ethic of love, to the ethic of the kingdom. But for them, Christianity was really just about living a just life, serving the poor, right? Good, good things. But what they left on the wayside was this central message of the gospel, that Jesus came to be a substitute for sinners, that he came to satisfy the wrath of God, that he came to extend us God's mercy. So they, they left behind what Jesus has done for us to focus especially on the question, what would Jesus do? Maybe y'all had some of those like bracelets growing up, right? It's, it's important, but it's got to be connected to what Jesus has done. So when we say we reject the social gospel, but that the gospel is social, we're saying the gospel has all sorts of social implications because Jesus is a king. And when a king comes, a king brings a kingdom. And that's more than just an individual thing. That has all sorts of societal effects. But we've got to keep it connected to who he is as the king and the the relationship that we have with him. So think back to Zacchaeus again. Uh, Proponents of the social gospel would focus only on his just living. Like, okay, Zacchaeus is good because he's starting to do the good things. There are some within the church who would want to ignore that part and just talk about the mercy and love of Jesus. We want to reject both of those um, false interpretations. They're both, in a sense, watering down the gospel. One is legalism, is works righteousness. The other is being opposed to God's law in some way. But the true gospel meets us where we are but it doesn't leave us there. So I want to draw your attention now to uh, an example of the early church. So in the first three centuries after Jesus rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, the church was a minority group in the Roman Empire. And for much of that time, it was a significantly oppressed minority group. And yet the gospel spread like wildfire. Uh, The church was booming across the Roman Empire. Ultimately, because the spirit of God was working. But the spirit of God used the preaching of God's word, uh, the, the life together of God's people, but also these unique aspects of the Christian community that were countercultures to the society they were living in to help facilitate the spread of that gospel. So this comes from an article by Tim Keller. Think about this with me. The early church had these five features that made it unique from the society around them. It was multiracial. It was a community of forgiveness. It was a community of hospitality to the poor and the suffering. Uh, There was an early Roman uh, leader who was writing, I think, to one of the emperors who said something like, the Christians are doing a much better job of caring for our poor than we are. And from his perspective, that was a problem. He's like, we got to figure out what to do about these Christians. Uh, The early church was committed to the sanctity of life. They would rescue infants that were being exposed, left outside to die and adopt them into their families. And it was a sexual counterculture uh, that recognized the equal dignity of men and women, God's good design for marriage and sexuality between one man and one woman and, and a lifelong covenant and so on and so forth. So here's my question for you. Stereotypically, I really want you to respond to this by the way. Stereotypically, 
which of these values do you associate with the political left? And which of these values do you associate with the political right? What do you all think? You seem to have some thoughts. Yeah, yeah. So it is, it is in your handout. Uh, so the early church was multiracial. The early church was a community of forgiveness. It was a community of hospitality to the poor and suffering, committed to the sanctity of life, and it was a sexual counterculture. What do you all think? Isabel. Yeah, whatever you want. Yeah. All right. Any other thoughts? Yeah. Um, Thanks, Isabel. We thought the first three all left, and then four and five were right. Okay. Anyone else want to chime in? Yeah. I think you changed it. I think neither of the left or the right are great for everything. Mmm. <laughs> uh, all, all of your contributions were very helpful, and that was part of the answer I was looking for. Thank you. Uh, yeah. So what, what do we see from this? Uh, some of these values are stereotypically associated with the left. Some of them are stereotypically associated with the right. The gospel is the good news of the kingdom of God that transcends our political dichotomies. Now, this is not me saying you aren't allowed to have strong political opinions. or um, It's not even me saying you aren't allowed to like, associate with a certain political party. But I want to help you to see, as I need this reminder as well, is that the kingdom of God is bigger that we don't have to choose between these values that have been like separated from one another in our society. You can pursue justice for the unborn and for the poor. Uh, you can pursue racial justice and a, a life that is lived justly in line with God's values and what he teaches about human dignity and sexuality. Um, so yeah, any, any other thoughts on that before we, we've got one or two things left. I'm going to keep moving. I really think it's important if we want to be growing into people that are pursuing justice in our lives to keep the end in mind. That the Bible teaches that Jesus is coming back. And when he comes back, he's going to bring his kingdom in full and all injustices will be made right and everything that is sad will come untrue. Like that is happening. Uh, this fits under the category of the, of the word eschatology, the study of last things, what is coming in the future. But what we need to see is that these things that are coming shapes our lives today. And I want to point two ways. If that's true, if Jesus is coming one day to bring God's kingdom to earth, that both relativizes our activism. It shows us that at the end of the day, we are not able to build God's kingdom. We cannot bring God's kingdom to earth, but Jesus will. So it, it, it relativizes it. It puts it in its proper perspective. But it also fuels our activism properly understood because we want to be living in light of this kingdom that is already here in a sense because the Messiah has come but is also coming. Uh, so I, I don't know if that resonates with you all, but th this is really helpful to me when an author, Chris Watkin, pointed it out that at the end of the day, my efforts are not to build God's kingdom, but to witness to it. And that means they really, really matter. 
even as I'm in this season of waiting, waiting for Jesus to come back. There's a, a hip-hop group named Beautiful Eulogy. I don't know if any of y'all have heard of them. Uh, I like a lot of their songs, and in their song Slain, they have this line that I think holds these things together well. Uh, they say, I'm not afraid to talk about social injustices. Let's also talk about the throne where perfect justice is, right? So I'm not afraid to talk about social injustices. Let's also talk about the throne where perfect justice is. Uh, I'm going to skip the little note on your outline about seeking justice being U-shaped versus N-shaped. The big idea there is the default mode of human religion is we're trying to ascend to God to bring his blessing back down. When the good news about Jesus, the, the true religion is God has come down to meet us in our mess and to carry us up after him. And that actually also affects the way that we pursue justice. We're not building the kingdom. We're not ascending to God. He's met us and he's changing us and transforming us. And we can begin to live in light of these kingdom values. I want to mention a few practical takeaways. There's a lot that could be said that I don't have time to say. I'd love to hear your thoughts afterwards on some practical takeaways. Um, I'm just going to mention two, and then I'm going to close with an illustration before we do some Q&A. Where do you start? You are being assaulted every day, even if you're trying to avoid it, with need after need after need after need, because we live in a more globally connected, digitally connected society than has ever existed on the face of this planet, right? Now, I'm not, I'm not saying that's an all bad thing, but I am saying it can be incredibly exhausting to hear about all of the needs around the world. So, so where do you start? There, there might be particular burdens that God has placed on your heart, but if you're looking to grow in living a life of justice and mercy, my encouragement to you is to start local. And even not just in your city, but maybe even start with the family of God. That God has told, Jesus tells his disciples, the world will know you are my disciples by the love you have for one another. So if you feel like you're having to pick and choose between all of these different good causes that you want to be a part of, like pray, bring that to the Lord. He'll, he'll give you direction, but start with the place where God has put you. He's made you an embodied person for a reason. So start with the communities you're already a part of. What would it look like for you to live a more just and merciful life in your local church, if you're connected to one, in your RUF chapter, in your, on your campus? And then there might be other global causes that you're called to, but if, if you're struggling to know where to start, start local. Uh, here's the second thing I want to mention really quickly. Tim Keller pulling on the work of a guy named John Perkins. He mentions... Uh, three different kinds of justice work. He talks about relief, development, and social reform. If we had more time, I, I would give you like biblical examples of all these things. But relief is direct aid to me uh, meet the immediate physical, material, and economic needs. So the Good Samaritan puts the dude up in a hotel while he's recovering and covers all the costs. That's relief. Uh, foster care would be a great modern example of this. Uh, development is actually giving an individual, community, or society the resources that they need to move away from dependence upon relief, right? So a lot of nonprofit work these days is moving more in the development direction rather than the relief direction. So you could think of 
Um, actually, I will give you a biblical example. In Deuteronomy 15, when a slave's debt was being erased, the slave was not just uh, released and like, all right, good luck. Like they were sent with resources for a new and self-sufficient economic life. That does open the can of worms of biblical slavery. And if you want to talk more about that, I would love to talk, but we, we don't have time for that now. Uh, so yeah, there, there are lots of organizations doing this kind of work today. Uh, social reform then is when development goes public, right? When it becomes like written into the laws of the land, when uh, there's a redirection, to quote Tim Keller, of the flow of financial capital, of social capital, of spiritual capital back into a community instead of out of it. Uh, my spicy take is I, I think pretty much all Christians are called to some kind of relief work, uh, to meeting the needs of the folks around us as we're able. I think a lot of Christians should consider partnering with organizations that are doing significant uh, development work, helping individuals, families, communities to um, move away from their dependency upon relief. And I think some Christians have a special calling in their vocations to give their lives in many respects to some aspect of social reform. So as we wrap up, I want to leave probably two minutes for Q&A at the end, and I'll stay up uh, if you want to chat more. But um, I really want to land the plane this way because at the end of the day, uh, I forget if I said this earlier or not, but this is incredibly good news to me. Jesus cares about everything more than you care about anything. And that's not a reason to become passive, uh, but it's a reason to rest, to know that like you can get up in the morning and try to live a just life because Jesus cares about everything more than you care about anything. And you can go to bed at the end of the day because Jesus cares about everything more than you care about anything. Uh, but to, to, to bring the plane uh, to a landing, I wanna share a story that is really meaningful to me. Uh, there was a man and a woman, an old couple that entered a jewelry store one day. And these folks are like really old. Like uh, maybe some of y'all have grandparents that are in this condition where they like, they, they don't walk, they kind of like shuffle. So they're, they're shuffling into the jewelry store. And as soon as they start shuffling in, the jeweler who's behind the counter, he sees that the older lady, the wife, is carrying with her a brown paper bag. And she comes up to the counter and she begins to dump the contents of this brown paper bag onto that like special cloth that jewelers have out for like examining jewelry. And as she's doing this, the jeweler notices two more things. One, she's brought with her like 15 to 20 rings, rings that represent like years of anniversaries and celebrations and love uh, with her husband who's there with her. But he also notices as he's looking down that this woman's fingers are like gnarled with arthritis, uh, that they're, they're so swollen that even before he starts the conversation, he puts two and two together that like she's not able to put these rings on her fingers anymore. So she's brought them in to be resized. And this jeweler is a kind man who's committed to his profession. So what does he do? He actually, he's honest with this woman and he tells her, for me to resize these rings to the extent that they would all actually fit over your fingers, it would be really expensive. Uh, like my, my counsel to you is to pick one or two that are especially important to you and we can start from there. So the woman is kind of visibly discouraged, but she listens to his counsel and starts rifling through looking for the ring with the diamond on it, her engagement ring and maybe one other When At this point, 
The husband, who's been quiet so far, shuffles up to the counter. And he, he puts his hands on the cloth where all the rings are resting. And he pushes it towards the jeweler. And he says, she gets them all. What was that husband saying with his actions even more than his words? He was saying, I do not care how expensive it is. I do not care what the cost is. I love my bride and I want to make her beautiful. And in the good news about Jesus, he says to you today, if your trust is in him, and he says to this whole world, this whole creation that he dearly loves, I don't care about the cost. I don't care how expensive it is. And he proved that for us when he gave his life because he loves his bride and he wants to make us beautiful. And one day he will make his whole creation new and beautiful again. Um, let me pray and then we'll do some Q&A. Father, I thank you so much for the good news about Jesus that meets us right where we are, but doesn't leave us there. Thank you that he's the king of the kingdom that we can today find ways to live more just and merciful lives through the help of your Holy Spirit, even as we wait the coming day when he will come back and make all things new. Uh, help these friends this weekend to find rest and refreshment for their souls and for their bodies, and help us all as we go out from here, even tomorrow, to live in the freedom of the gospel and in a joyful obedience to you as we seek to live lives of justice and mercy. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.